Welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Veronica Penny. And I'm Natalia Velez-Ryan. And this week, we are talking about Game of Thrones. While Game of Thrones is not necessarily a story told from the point of view of the female gaze, as it has largely male writers and directors, we did think it was important to talk about the female characters in the series. Yeah, let's talk about fantasy and how we got to the world of Game of Thrones. Yeah, so the fantasy genre tends to either not have any female characters, as is the case in The Hobbit, there's not a single female character in the entire book, or they can tend to be kind of thinly drawn caricatures of women. What are some what are some other examples outside of The Hobbit that you've come across? Some of the major fantasy series like Wheel of Time and King Killer Chronicles and of course Lord of the Rings have some female characters like of course we have Arwen and Galadriel but they are either not figuring like in the story as much as the male heroes are or they're usually just like driven by a love interest or some sort of plot line that at the end of the day revolves around a male hero. And there's a test in movies that we use all the time for this, right? The Bechdel test. Yeah, that is a good way to look at it, is whether the female characters are named and whether they have scenes between female characters where there are no male characters and they're not talking about male characters. So that is certainly something that is largely missing from the genre. At least, to be clear, what is considered the fantasy literature canon. Of course, there are super cool authors out there who are women, who are writing fantasy, and who are writing interesting female characters. Is J.R.R. Tolkien really the one who kicked off like what we now consider to be like the modern fantasy genre and canon? So it comes a little bit before him, the kind of accepted lineage of the fantasy literature canon comes from a medieval literature revival in the 18th century when the efforts of literature were to like return to a more beautiful and ordered world where like in the midst of like industrial England they wanted to return to something a little bit more idyllic and to this hero tale these tales of kind of like escapism and adventure and myth that are kind of what we still see in fantasy today that makes sense, especially when you look at that time period. Women's rights weren't really first and foremost on everyone's minds. During the 1800s, I think it was maybe during the mid-1800s that like women were actually allowed to hold the land. So if that's really the time period that we're basing this off of, like we could expect some of those same societal structures to carry through the genre, correct? In a sense, but... At the same time, it is the fantasy genre, and so when you start to introduce elements like dragons, things that are clearly fantastic, like you're no longer abiding by the rules of this world, so why um, why is it necessary to still abide by these kind of social political structures of our own past? And that's a criticism that a lot of people have of the fantasy genre. A notable one is Garrett Robinson, who wrote an article for Medium called The Fantasy Genre Hates Women. And he does kind of make that argument that the excuse that it's unrealistic to portray women as having a 
position of power is necessarily faulty because fantasy doesn't have to abide by our own past. That is the point of fantasy. I guess the only thing you run into as an author is like, you just need to be able to suspend disbelief so you can create a world that is structured any way you want it to, so long as that world makes sense, like in its own closed space that you're creating. Right, like it has to abide by its own rules and history, but not necessarily by our reality's own rules and history. Right, or like the specific reality and history of like Western culture and progress. Yeah, absolutely. And Kay Elliott wrote a really interesting um, essay on this, and she gives some suggestions of how fantasy authors can kind of free themselves of those restrictions of like these Western cultural notions. And her argument is exactly that, that they aren't universal, and we don't have to assume that they would hold in a fantasy world. So I think of an author like N.K. Jemisin, who wrote the Broken Earth trilogy, which is like a really interesting fantasy series. And she really like takes that to the max of like creating an entirely alternate world where gender norms are completely different, racial politics are completely different, and also like the rules of physics and what humans can do are completely different. So it's not that there's no one writing fantasy that is different and complex, but that they're not yet considered part of the canon. And so the way that Elliot phrases it is that this kind of neglect helps embed the idea of women not belonging in the narrative. Yeah, and it also makes sense actually in the context of not just fantasy, but the broader literature canon. When you take any intro to American literature or like historical British literature classes, a lot of the times those books will be by male authors simply because like male authors were the people who were predominantly writing at the time. And then men in power decided that those were the books by which all other books should be measured. So that obviously creates issues looking back because when you're trying to get a different historical perspective, like you run into that same trap of there just not being like female voices or female representation or women had to write under men's pen names. And it's definitely an issue that's present in more than just the fantasy canon, but fantasy does have like this unique opportunity to address it because you're not you're not trying to write a book that conforms to the world as we know it where you're trying to write something that's completely different something that people haven't really imagined before like something original in a way so that seems like a great opportunity to sort of address some of those issues yeah and that's definitely our focus on the female gaze really ties into that um that at the end of the day the female gaze is understanding those institutions that have been in place that have said this is the canon and knowing that that doesn't mean that those are the only things that we can value and that we can look beyond that. So should we talk a little bit about how this plays out in Game of Thrones, like how we're seeing women portrayed and how it kind of stacks up to the fantasy genre? Absolutely. Who do you want to start with? Well, I guess we can start big picture with the world of Game of Thrones in general, like the gender norms that we observe in Westeros early on when this world is kind of being set up in the early seasons. Women are kind of expected to be ladies, get married, have babies. That's kind of the sense that we get when we're first meeting, you know, the Starks and Sansa's biggest dream is to like marry a prince and become queen. 
And early on, Arya has this kind of refusal to conform to that. And we can see that they try to discourage that in her. They do tell her like, oh, you have to wear a dress. You have to be a lady. Why can't you be more like your sister Sansa, who is doing a perfect job with needlepoint crocheting (laughs) and has exquisite (laughs) handwriting? Yeah. And... It doesn't seem like women are necessarily property owners. Like they, if they have power or if they have property, it comes down from their family name. So either through their father's name or once they get married, their husband's name. They do also have an additional kind of power, though, and it's the power that they're able to exercise over their powerful husbands. So you see that a little bit in The Lady of Winterfell and her ability to talk to Ned Stark and make decisions together, although... I'm not really sure that they ever make a decision together because she's mainly balking at the idea of him going down to King's Landing, which of course he does anyway. And then we also see a little bit of Cersei attempting to exert power over King Robert and failing. And we learn that that's kind of because her main weapon is her sexuality and King Robert just could not be less interested in her. So it's like not a very good match for her. Yeah. And Another, I guess, interesting aspect of the world is, now that you mentioned sexuality, is that sexual assault in this society seems to kind of be the norm. It doesn't seem like women have any rights in this respect. We see multiple characters get sexually assaulted throughout the series, and there's never any kind of sense of, like, the man is going to face any kind of consequences for sexually assaulting a woman. It's interesting because now that I remember back, I'm pretty sure the first scene of sex that we actually see in Game of Thrones is Cersei and Jamie, which is yeah, that makes incest, their brother and sister. But also, like, the way that they're having sex is, like, A, pretty violent, and B, they're, like, not looking at each other. So... Yeah, that's a great point. And we are kind of led to believe that they have a really loving relationship. But he does, later on in the series, when Joffrey dies assault her against her will and we're not kind of made to feel like he's a bad guy for it like the general story arc of Jamie is that he's generally kind of a good guy who's just like blinded by his love for Cersei and that feels problematic it's interesting that you bring that up because that's true like we're sort of in that scene led to believe that Cersei has been stringing him along been teasing him been like manipulating him to get him to do very specific things for her mm-hmm you know, Cersei is, like, obviously distraught over the death of her child, and Jamie assaults her. And in the books, the scene was consensual, so it does make you wonder, like, why did they turn it into rape, like, in the television series? It doesn't, like, it's a baffling decision. It is, and, I mean, if that's not how it was written in the original book, you have to assume, you don't assume, like, it was the writers and directors who made the decision to change it, I remember from one of my college literature classes, uh, my professor made this really interesting point one day, which is that in American society, sex is censored on TV, whereas in European society, like the ratings are, you know, like the G, PG, PG PG-13R are more centered around violence. So people can watch like war movies as much as they want, children, teenagers in the United States, but they can't watch scenes of sex. And it turned into a discussion about the role of violence in sexuality in American culture. And there's actually this author who's done a lot of research on it. She's a a German academic. Her name is Sabina Silke. 
and she wrote this book, Reading Rape, The Rhetoric of Sexual Violence in American Literature. And it basically just talks about how rape is, in a way it parallels, in American society at least, like the conquest of the Indians Mm -hmm. and like manifest destiny. And I'm wondering if there was anything in there that like Jamie felt like he was losing control so this was the way, a way for the writers and directors to allow him to reassert his masculinity and control in a situation that he felt like he no longer had control of. Yeah, that I think that's a, a really good reading of it. Definitely sex is used as control throughout the series. We see the same happen with Ramsey and Sansa, but it is portrayed much differently in that we know that Ramsey is a bad guy. So it's interesting that there's a little bit of like that double standard there that when Ramsey does it, it's bad because he is overall a bad person. And with Jamie, it was just kind of let slide. That's a really good point. And I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Me neither. And like, I think that it just points to the fact that this is a complicated series. Um, You know, it does have more female characters in power than your typical fantasy literature. But that doesn't mean that all the portrayals of women are going to be positive or all the portrayals of the gender structure in the society are ideal. It's just an interesting series to look at in terms of how they are treating women and power. But it is very interesting to think about the women who are actually able to achieve power within the series. You look at people like Cersei, Sansa, Daenerys... Um, Marjorie, and these are all very like stereotypically attractive female characters. Like they are revered within the realms, they are known to be beautiful. That's a really good point, and it makes you think of Brienne, who every man who meets her throughout the series makes fun of her size and her kind of being burly because she's in a knight's armor, and she is pretty much ostracized, even though the people who get to know her really well like Jamie do end up accepting her like she is an exception to the rule she is treated like an outcast because she's not traditionally feminine quote unquote yeah and i think that there's an interesting parallel in the series a very obvious one between Brienne and Arya and that they both want to be fighters they aren't very much interested in like the traditional trajectory of a woman in that society where they don't want to marry a lord necessarily. They don't want to settle down and have children. And I don't really know that motive matters specifically other than it's like something that they're both interested in. Like perhaps Brienne was teased and bullied constantly from a very young age for her size and that made her want to pursue her certain path or like, I'm not really necessarily sure that like an underlying factor is important, but I think the important piece is that like both are actually ostracized from this society for wanting to be something different. So Brienne for being a knight where people are like, what are you doing? Like you're a woman. Why are you here? And then Arya is more of a self ostracization, but she does just like completely depart from her family and inheritance and becoming a lady who marries a Lord who settles down in some faraway land. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting that she, could be like a Marjorie or a Cersei in that she could kind of still continue to play this traditional feminine role and manipulate things from behind the scenes, but she doesn't choose that. She just chooses to be true to what she wants, which 
is nothing really that Westeros can offer her. There's not not really a place for her, which is, I guess, why she feels like she has to leave by the end of the series. And it's not like she didn't have that choice. Like Gendry proposed to her and she like she could not have been less interested in that. Wait. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And she could have probably asserted like some influence over the realm if she had uh, accepted his proposal. But that's just not her path. That's not what she's into. And it's actually interesting because had she taken that path, it's argued like she would have exerted much less influence over the realm because she eventually was the one who killed the Night King, which saved the realm. So yeah. like had she decided from a young age, no, I'll just become a lady and follow what everyone else has done, like what Sans is trying to do, what my mom did before me, that never would have happened. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up that moment because that was one of the moments I really enjoyed of the last season, which I guess this is not a review of the last season. (laughs) (laughs) But it was cool that we were kind of expecting John to be the one to do that because he's had this very typical hero's journey so far. And we're just kind of making the assumption that he's going to be the one to destroy the Night King. So it was really cool to have that unexpected moment that it was actually Arya all along who was meant to help them win the war against the dead. I agree, especially the way that that scene was built up. It really seemed like John maybe could get it together and get over there and <laughs> if only <laughs> if only John could ever really get it together and get over there at any point in the series, but that's besides the point. Yeah, we did not get that this series. But let's talk about some of the women who do have power in the series, because I think that their journeys are pretty interesting. Let's start with Cersei, because she's really the first powerful woman that we see in the series. Yes, absolutely. Cersei is an interesting one, because as you go through the series, you learn about her character and her past and her troubled relationship with King Robert and how she was so excited from such a young age that... Like, it seems like there really was, like, a turning point for her character. Like, yes, she may have always had this weird relationship with her brother, but as we learn later on when she's talking to Ned Stark and later King Robert, she really was in love with him, and he was, like, the great hero of the realm, and every woman wanted to be with King Robert, and he was more interested in the dead love of his life than he could be in, as she said, a living girl, which was her. So... I think that was the turning point for her character where she realized that, you know, if she wanted to be like the queen, it couldn't be through love. It had to be through some other way. And that's where she started using her sexuality to like exert control in specific ways. Yeah. And now that you put it like that, it makes me draw a parallel with Sansa in that when we first meet Sansa, she also kind of has these romantic ideas of what it is to like marry a king and she is also disappointed by reality absolutely she sticks by joffrey pretty much until the bitter end when her father is arrested she's like oh joffrey my love she turns on her own sister and lies to get joffrey out of trouble which ends up killing their dire wolf so she makes all of these decisions in this misguided ideal of love and it's in her time at King's Landing specifically in her spending time with Cersei that she realizes that this isn't the way that things actually work like if you want to be the queen and you want to have that kind of power you have to be very clever about your advantages and how you use them yeah and of course as you mentioned Cersei is a master of that of kind of trying to rule the kingdom by manipulating Robert which 
I guess, proves a little bit easy because of his propensity for drinking a lot and not remembering what's happening and not showing up to meetings and that kind of thing. So it is interesting after Robert dies and uh, essentially it's her father who is in power and he will not be manipulated by Cersei. And we kind of see this relationship there that essentially he doesn't think that she is intelligent or that she could handle power. And we can kind of see that her whole life she's been treated in this way that she's just not valued, I guess, as anything other than a bride. Absolutely. And it's interesting because between looking at the way that her and her father and Jamie all interact and just like the little snippets of like childhood tales that they talk about in their conversations, it paints this picture of Jamie as like this strapping warrior who just did what he wanted. And he was his father's favorite child because he was his firstborn son. Meanwhile, Cersei is the one sitting there actually paying attention to like the way that their father strategizes, the way that he rules his kingdom. And time and again, her advice and her input are just completely dismissed, even though she's the one who was paying attention and trying harder to actually figure out what it means to rule. Yeah, and I think that does point to, and I think it's something that largely the series is about, is kind of the old guard and the new guard. So while Tywin is this very traditional, like, oh, only men are masters of war and power or whatever, it does start to change as these kind of older characters are killed or these this kind of new generation starts to come into power. That's very true. And it's also interesting to look at just like how fixated the old generation is on family name and preserving the family name. And that basically ends with Tywin with the exception of Cersei and Jamie. It seems that all the new houses put much less credence into that, which I think is also partly what's able to disrupt like this very traditional structure you see of men and women where women are able to have more agency and power like in the later seasons. Yeah. Uh, So it's really interesting to see kind of Cersei throughout that journey because it really isn't until all the Lannister men who could be on the throne are pretty much dead that she is able to take the throne for herself. Not just I'm sitting next to who's on the throne, but this is my throne. Absolutely. It's clear that she is in charge of the Seven Kingdoms from a pretty early point in the series, but it's constantly like her own father tries to remarry her to one of the Tyrells and it's really only once there are no other options remaining that her leadership is accepted. It's also a very interesting parallel with what happens to Sansa at the end of the season because no matter how many times John tries or does make a questionable decision in ruling, in battle, in just like leaving against everyone's wishes, Sansa is the one who remains in the North and tries to rule the North and tries to keep the peace and keep everything together. And it's interesting because actually at the end, only when he is sent to the Night's Watch is Sansa actually accepted as the Queen in the North. Yeah, that's a good point. There is still this kind of loyalty of him as like, a man with stark blood that he has to be the one uh, on the throne so it is interesting like I feel like we do really root for Sansa and like it's cool to see her be on the throne but she also really does parallel Cersei's journey 
I don't know, I guess it's interesting to think about what is she really going to be like as a ruler when everything that she learned about ruling, she learned from watching Cersei and from watching Littlefinger. Maybe we'll find out in one of the spinoff series. Time will tell. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So you talked about Tywin trying to sell off Cersei uh, as a bride. And it's interesting that that is also how Daenerys's journey begins. You know, at the beginning of the series, she is just payment to the Dothraki for using their army. And she has this really epic journey from prize bride to might we call her the Mad Queen? We might. We might call her that. (laughs) It's interesting because I've been spending a lot of time cruising around Twitter and reading what people have to think of the season. I personally have not read all of the books, but I've talked to people who have. Mm -hmm. And the Mad Queen piece is difficult because I've heard that in the books it's a little bit more apparent from the beginning that she has like a ruthless ruling style. But I think this is really summarized like very succinctly and clearly toward the very, very end of season eight when Tyrion is talking about how the way that Daenerys has come to power and how with each brutal suppression of evil people, she becomes more certain of her own purpose to the point where that justifies for her killing everyone in King's Landing, because if she could have the throne, it will have made all of this pain and loss worth it. Yeah, that is interesting, and I haven't read all of the books either. Uh, But yeah, in the series, it is very much portrayed. At the beginning, like all of her little victories are portrayed as the right thing to do. She made the right choice. And John puts it really well in one of those last scenes when she's kind of saying like, no, but I know that I'm right, that my decisions are the right decisions. And he does point out, like, well, what about everybody else who thinks that? And she says, they don't matter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is interesting because what you mentioned is Daenerys' journey beginning when she's sold as a child bride to a great warrior and, like, her brutal acclamation of that. Like, she does eventually take agency and power and the people there come to love her. Basically, from the point that Khal Drogo dies and onward, she's actually alone and there isn't really any pressure for her to marry there's some pressure in marine just simply to suppress like the revolts of the masters but she's the one female character who east of westeros at least is like accepted on her own yeah and it is interesting because people on um, that side of the sea come to love her not because of the Targaryen name because that doesn't really mean anything to them but because of her actions whereas in Westeros really power just comes from your name and even though that is her claim to the throne throughout the entire series that's not why the people who choose to follow her follow her she earns that with her own actions when she actually gets to Westeros, she does run into much more of an issue. People don't necessarily recognize her authority. They they don't know who she is. And she hasn't actually taken any actions in Westeros to earn their love and loyalty, except when she defends the North. Right. But even then, that in that scene in the banquet hall backfires. And it's John instead who's recognized, even though he didn't really do anything do anything at all (laughs) sit on a dragon on a wall and look confused and yeah while she like mitigated a lot of the loss that they would have had and a lot of like the damage and death yeah so it is interesting that um westeros uh, aptly named does seem to still 
adhere to a lot of those Western societal ideals. And But at the same time, I feel like by the time she gets there, a lot of the people who would have cared about her power given to her by her name are kind of gone at this point. And so she's encountering this new guard of like Sansa who you know, doesn't care who she is because Sansa has just worked to defend the North. Like, she's done the work to deserve the love of the North, and she's not just going to give that to Daenerys for no reason. I mean, Sansa, just from being in King's Landing from so for so long and seeing Cersei and being around Littlefinger, like, also immediately recognizes the relationship between Jon and Daenerys, which she says out loud to Daenerys's face um just that men are stupid and that they can be easily manipulated by like beautiful women so I think that's also like a large part of her mistrust is that she just like has seen too many things and she just knows exactly how this could play out and how it could play out poorly for the north yeah where should we go from here I feel like we've talked about the important characters we have I guess the only like slight correction I'd like to make is when I said that there are no women who have agency and are followed without anyone questioning them and telling them to get married. I guess like two notable but smaller exceptions to that are Yara in the Iron Islands because she actually does have a small group of people who have fought with her and defect to follow her instead of joining her crazy uncle who looks like a rock star from the 90s. Right. And then there's also the Sand Vipers, although they don't really have a following. They're sort of just like their own isolated little tribe. Yeah, yeah, those are definitely interesting examples. And I think that it points to the fact that while not all the stories about women in the series are perhaps as nuanced as we would like them to be, the series does that work of like acknowledging that the world is about 50-50 men and women. And so a story that is about this kind of expansive world should include it as many female characters as as it does male characters and that they can be complex they can be outright evil they can be heroes but it does kind of at least strike that balance that some fantasy literature does not in terms of just like understanding the world as made up of both men and women that's true and to Game of Thrones credit like there are other parts of the series that are done well like it, it plays like a smaller role, but we do see like some references of like, like gay characters, which is really nice to see and like bi characters and just like a diversity there that you wouldn't, that I don't think I've seen really on at least not that overtly in any other fantasy show or movie. Yeah. Yeah. While it does at the same time kind of abide by Western society's rules in the sense that um, that is still like frowned upon. It is interesting to look at other um, fantasy series, like I mentioned, the Broken Earth trilogy, which does a really interesting job at like not having those societal norms of gender. And so characters who are queer, who are trans, kind of don't have these labels because that society just doesn't value gender relationships in the same way that ours does. Yeah. And two other really good examples of that are works by Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin. And both of those, uh, I'm thinking specifically of The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, but Octavia Butler has an entire trilogy. And in both of those, like the main protagonist actually is a person or of a species that comes from a societal structure very similar to what we experience in Western society. And the way that those authors navigate 
this entirely unknown new dynamic of like sexuality and society in a completely alien planet is through the eyes of a protagonist who understands what it is that most people in Western society understand contemporary society society to be like. So those authors are very effectively able to use this protagonist as a vehicle to take us through this world and their point of view and the way that they describe it makes sense because they're digesting it as the, at the same time that the reader is digesting it. So you sort of have a guide through this world. They sort of cut through that otherness by giving you something more familiar to guide you through it. And I think that that's like a really effective way of doing this. And it's also something that actually could have been done very easily and effectively in Game of Thrones because you do have so many characters going from like one land to another. And those lands do have different systems of governance. Like it is not outside the imagination to like sail across the narrow sea and see something completely different that could have been a better representation of like feminism or equality. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I guess what we're getting at here is that fantasy can do that work of showing us alternate ways of just living in the world and of a society to be structured. So read great fantasy written by women. Do we want to do recommendations of cool stuff that we've been reading or watching, etc., created by women? One book that I've really enjoyed is Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble, and it talks about like the role of feminism and um, just being Black in a society that's controlled by computer algorithms that are written by white men. So the one that she deals with heavily in her book is the Google search algorithm and how in the earlier days of Google and honestly as recently as the Obama administration, the way that the algorithm is designed, it it basically takes feedback from what searchers are looking for and what they click on and it like reorganizes search rankings based on that. So if you typed in like black women, you'd often like in images or in Google searches, you'd get um, posts or websites that were for sex workers or, and then if you typed in, if you just ran a search for white women, you'd get a very different set of results. And Google actually never fixed this in their code. They simply suppressed those results down so that they wouldn't come up first. But if you're at all interested in the way that information is structured or the way we consume information on the internet and why it can be problematic, I definitely recommend Algorithms of Oppression. Wow, yeah, that's that feels like a really important read because it's something that we almost assume to be unbiased, Google, but it's impossible for it to be unbiased when it's made by people and by a very like specific kind of person, almost always white men. White men in Silicon Valley and startups. And yep. it really points to that importance of um, representation everywhere. And you really see through that book, um, it's like a real manifestation of like the male gaze in technology. What have you been liking lately? Uh, I just finished watching a great show on Netflix called Sex Education, and it was created by Lori Nunn. It was a really great series about this um, teenage boy whose mother is a sex therapist, and he basically becomes a sex therapist for his peers at school. And it's just a really interesting look at like 
what's going on in teenagers' brains as, like, they're starting to develop and explore their sexuality. And just the main character, Otis, is a really interesting character because he is kind of really afraid of sex. Like, the whole season starts with this idea that he can't masturbate because he just has a panic attack if he tries. And he's just a very interesting depiction of a teenage boy because he's, like, not trying to pressure any girls into having sex and he's like super thoughtful about how sex relates to relationships and what's going on um, with your mental health and all that stuff and it's also just a really funny awesome show. That reminds me a little bit of what we talked about in our first episode, just about finding portrayals of men in media who do not embody toxic masculinity and that seems like such a refreshing example of instead of a an insecure teenage boy trying to like assert his masculinity by like trying to sleep with as many girls as possible. You have a boy who's sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. It is nice to see because as young men are watching TV, they too can see that there are different ways of being a young man and that, you know, you don't have to feel like perhaps you don't live up to society's standards of what it means to be a teenage boy if you're not ready to have sex or if you just happen to be a very sensitive person. Um, So yeah, it's a really good one. I recommend it. Awesome. I'll definitely check it out. Everyone else should too. All right. Well, thank you for potting with me. Absolutely. Thank you for potting with me as well. This podcast is produced by its hosts and was edited by me, Natalia. The music is by Michael Ryan. The critics and theorists we discussed today were Garrett Robinson, Kate Elliott, Sabina Silka, and W.A. Senior, who wrote about the history of the fantasy genre. Thanks for listening.